chapter 1 and read several verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them because God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, worshipped and served a creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now this is an awful passage of Scripture. It gives them a, a terrible insight into the nature of, of the human heart. But if you look more closely at exactly what it is that these people did and what they believed, you'll find that it's nothing more nor less than ancient paganism, which is equivalent to what we would call today evolutionary philosophy. And maybe you don't see that right off, but that's what it is. You notice it says they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They worshipped the creation more than the Creator. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They became vain in their reasoning. Their foolish heart was darkened. All of these terrible things that are said about the mind of men. In the Sunday School Hour, we discussed a little bit the origin of man and the development of his different societies and so forth. And you recall that all men, according to the Bible and according to the real facts, actually, of science and history, have come from the same man, Noah, and his wife, and their three sons and their three wives. And for a time they lived together at the Tower of Babel, but then God separated them, and the different tribes and nations and languages then developed after the separation. But they all had originally the knowledge of the true God, and of his word, and of his plan. Noah certainly did, and he had taught his sons, and at least some of the descendants retained some knowledge of the true God. It says they knew God, but they decided they didn't want to follow God, they didn't glorify him as God, and so they began to try to reason things out for themselves. They became vain in their reasonings. They no longer were thankful to God, and their heart became darkened. And this gives us the story of the drift of ancient man downward into a paganistic polytheism, really a humanism, centered in the worship of man. And the creation, it says they changed the image of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and then to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, and they worshipped nature, the creation, more than the creator. And men began to say, well, uh, this world is all that there is. And this universe is a self-contained system. And nature, God, God is the same as nature, uh, be began to be a sort of a pantheism, as it's called. God is, a, is synonymous with nature. And in order to 
to personify the different forces of nature and so forth, which represent the natural processes of this physical world, why they said, well, we'll, we'll say that here's the god of fire, and here's the god of the trees, and here's the god of the waters, and so on, and the goddess of this and the god of that. And this system of pantheism became on the popular level polytheism, and men began to try to make God with their own hands in an image like man and the other creatures that they saw around them. Now, this was ancient paganistic polytheism, pantheism, but really it's the same thing, just in a different garb as modern evolutionary philosophy. Because, you see, the modern evolutionist also believes that the universe is a closed system, that everything that is, is here in this universe. There is no external, omnipotent, transcendent creator God who made the universe. The universe is evolving itself by its own properties and processes, and it has evolved itself over long ages up through various levels of organization until finally it has attained the status of man. Man is the pinnacle of the evolutionary process. And man now not only understands his past evolution, but thinks he can control his future evolution. And so he's talking now about genetic engineering and various things, by which he is going to become God himself. In worshiping nature and worshiping the universe and wor worshiping science, the forces of nature, well, basically he's worshiping himself as the pinnacle of nature under the evolutionary process. Now maybe you have the impression that, that evolution was a modern theory that it started with the days of Charles Darwin, and that this is modern science. But it's no such thing. Evolution did not begin with Charles Darwin. He was a long way down the list in the developing theory of evolution. Do you know that Charles Darwin's grandfather, before Darwin was even born, wrote many books on evolutionary philosophy, including natural selection, and, and he had in his books the evidences that are still taught in our present textbooks about the embryological recapitulation and comparative anatomy and all these things, these were written in, a, in books by Charles Darwin's grandfather before Darwin was born. This is nothing new. And there were other evolutionists. There was Lamarck and, and so on. And you go on back and you find that the ancient Greek philosophers and the ancient Roman philosophers were evolutionists. All of them believed in a self-contained universe and that the atomic particles of the universe had gradually come together to make, uh, make the world and so on. And if you go into the East, you'll find that the ancient Chinese philosophers and the Hindu philosophers were evolutionists. They all believed in an infinitely old universe. Matter was eternal. And then the forces of nature and so on began to organize themselves, or the gods and goddesses that personify these forces of nature began to organize the universe from primeval chaos on up into its present form. And you begin to find, as you study history, that uh, all of the ancient philosophies and religious systems of mankind were evolutionary systems, just as described here in Romans. So modern evolution is not modern after all. Um, Darwinism is sort of a new sophisticated form of it, but uh, it's just a different form. Now, sometimes you hear people say that uh, the reason Moses, particularly those who are theistic evolutionists, who are trying to accommodate the Bible to evolution, they will say that Moses wrote the book of Genesis in terms of special creation because he was trying to accommodate uh, the truth to the limited understanding of his people. They were kind of a naive people, and they didn't understand things too well. And such a sophisticated concept as evolution would be beyond their comprehension. So therefore, he wrote in terms of special creation for their benefit. 
Well, that's absolutely wrong. It's absurd, as a matter of fact, because the people of Israel were familiar with evolution and only evolution. That's all they'd ever been taught. In Egypt, the Egyptians were evolutionists, and the Babylonians were evolutionists, and the Canaanites were. All of these believed in this vast age system and the development of nature through the various forces of nature and so on. And they called these different forces of nature by the names of gods and goddesses. That's true, but these were basically evolutionary systems. And the idea of a special recent creation out of nothing except the power of an omnipotent personal god is found only in the Bible. That's the only place you ever find it. Moses wasn't accommodating anybody to anything because he was giving a radically new revelation which they had never heard before. And in order for them to understand this new concept of creation, why, he had to make it awfully plain, just plain and definite and clear as it could possibly be. And that's exactly the book of Genesis. It's plain and definite and clear. It tells exactly what God did in creating everything. Nobody could misunderstand. If you, if you read words and you can understand words, you can understand what it says. And to try to make this fit evolution, uh, well, it just won't, won't work. That isn't what it says. And it was intended to teach special creation. Now, men who had the original knowledge of God knew that, but they very quickly went away from it into this pagan evolutionary system. And we do a tremendous disservice to our own souls as well as to the lives of our young people and to our society in general if we try to accommodate and harmonize and compromise with this system. We ought to study it in order to understand it and then also study the answers to it so that we can correct it and, and help our young people and refute the system. Our whole society has been taken over by this pagan system. And we ought not to let that have happened. We ought not to have let it happen, and we ought to do what we can to reclaim it until the Lord comes as he enables us. Well, but now particularly, though, I want you to see this one verse because although all of this is now taught in the name of modern science, there is no excuse for it scientifically. It says in verse 20 that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. There's no excuse for this. Because we have tremendous evidence of God in science and in nature, in this creation which we can see. It says... The invisible things of him are clearly seen. Now, that might sound paradoxical. How can invisible things be seen? Well, he says they're seen in the creation. They're seen from the creation of the world. And we want to look just at that uh, this morning. What, as we look at science, the creation, this world, nature, the natural processes, we ought to see evidence of God the Creator in these processes. It ought to be clearly seen there. Instead of science pointing a man away from God, it ought to point him directly to God the Creator, if he sees it rightly, because it's there. Now, they're clearly seen, it says. And what is it that's seen? Well, he says there are two things. Even his eternal power and Godhead are clearly seen in the creation. His eternal power and Godhead. One might say the power of God or the fact that God exists and the Godhead of God, that is, the nature of God, the structure of God, if you will, the fact of God and the nature of God clearly seen in the creation. Well, of course, this physical universe, uh, the space in which we live and the time through which we travel and the things that happen in the world, we've tried to organize these up into different disciplines of science. And so the chemist will study the chemical processes and the biologist will study biological processes and so on. 
We try to divide these up and then organize them up into formal scientific disciplines that we can study and transmit and apply. Well, all of these different processes and all of these different systems and structures in the, in the cosmos, in the universe, according to the scripture, ought to be testifying to the, to the power of God. Now, that word power is an interesting word because we find it frequently in the Bible, but we also find it frequently in the newspapers and in our textbooks. As a matter of fact, the study of science is organized around this concept of power or energy. Now, energy and power, we can use the two terms interchangeably because for our purposes they mean the same thing. Technically, in science, energy is the capacity to do work, and work is the moving of forces through distances. And then power is the rate at which the work is done, or the rate at which energy is, is used. So power is energy per unit time, but for our purposes we can use them as the same. Energy and power. And we organize our, our sciences around the concept of energy, and of course all of us are very concerned right now with energy, and we even call it a crisis. Well, as a matter of fact, energy is everywhere. And in our modern understanding of the nature of the world in which we live, science has come to recognize that literally everything in this physical universe is energy, of one kind or another. And everything that happens is an energy conversion. Now, we have different kinds of energy, for example, electrical energy and light energy and heat and sound and magnetism and chemical energy. And now we know in our atomic age that even matter is a kind of energy. Matter is energy, and there's an equivalence between matter and energy that Einstein uh, uh, may work out. Well, so everything is energy, and we know that everything that happens is an exchange of energy. Energy is converted from one kind into another kind. And in the process, work is done, and that's what the process is that we study. Now, in order to have work done, you have to have energy to do the work. Well, where did the energy come from? Where did this power come from to do the work? Now, work is moving forces through distances. Now, anything that moves, therefore, involves work, and that's everything, because anything that happens, any event, any process, anything, involves work. Even solid matter, like uh, the furniture or something, the, the, if you probe down into the atoms and the, and the nuclei, well, you find that there's nothing there. It's all space, tremendous bunches of energy moving at tremendous speeds. Energy is present in solid matter, and so everything is energy. And everything that happens is simply a, a conversion of energy. Energy is converted from electrical energy into light energy, for example, or from chemical energy in the gasoline to mechanical energy on the drive shaft, and so on. Everything involves energy. So this concept of energy or power is basic in science, and every process involves it, and so the scientist is continually studying this. Now, the interesting thing is that the laws which govern these processes the exchange of energy from one kind to another, and that's what every process is, are just two in number. They're just two laws. Some of you have heard this, but others, if you haven't, this is very important because this gives us really the key to the understanding of the evolutionary system. These two laws are called the first and second laws of thermodynamics. And don't worry about the big words. <laughs> These are words that engineers study and so on, but... Uh, we don't need to get into the technicalities. The concept is very simple. The first law, thermodynamics, simply means the power of heat. And it's used in the Greek New Testament uh, quite often, the two words. Anyway, uh, the, the, the two laws simply 
describe what happens when processes exchange energy. And the first law is a law that says energy is conserved. Energy is always conserved. Now, we're everybody's talking about conserving energy, but as a matter of fact, every process involves conservation of energy. That's the first law of science. Energy is not created, it's not destroyed, it's always conserved. So that always the total amount of energy stays the same in any process. The total amount stays the same. You cannot create any energy, you cannot destroy any energy. That's the law of conservation of energy. That's the first law, that's the most certain, most universal, most basic law of science. If there is such a thing as a law of science, that's it. This first law, law of energy conservation. And this tells us, of course, nothing is being created now. And you find immediately here's a contradiction with the evolutionary system because the evolutionary system says that these present processes of nature are the processes by which things were created. Well, there's no such thing. These present processes of nature don't create anything. Energy is conserved, and energy is everything. Energy is not created or destroyed. Nothing is being created now. Now, therefore, these present processes of nature can never tell us one thing about creation. And the thing that we can study present-day processes of biology and geology and so forth, and by these determine how things were created, is just completely unscientific. It can't be done, because these processes don't create anything. Now, that's the first law. The second law says that although energy is never destroyed, it always goes downhill. It becomes unavailable. That's the second law. Now, that tells us that uh, you can't have a perpetual motion machine. And it tells us that no engineer or scientist can design a process which is going to be 100% efficient. Always, some of the energy is wasted. Now, here's, a, here's what, we, what we're talking about when we say conserve energy. We don't want to waste any energy. We can't conserve it, or we can't create any, neither can we destroy any. It has to be conserved, but it can be wasted in the sense that it becomes unavailable for further work. And that's why not, not, nearly, not nearly all the energy in the gasoline that goes into the, the chemical energy in that gasoline is converted into mechanical energy on the drive shaft. A lot of it is wasted in heat and other ways. And every process involves this. Some of the energy has to overcome friction, which then generates heat, which goes out and warms the temperature of space a bit, and that's it's still there, but you can't use it anymore. It's lost as far as useful work is concerned. Now, every process involves this second law. Always the energy goes downhill, becomes less available than it was before for further work. Now, these are the two laws of science, and all processes, including biological processes and every kind, have to obey these two laws. These are the two laws of science. Now, what do they tell us? Well, for one thing, they tell us that the universe must have had a beginning. Because as time goes on, the second law says that the universe is running downhill. Finally, the sun's going to burn out, and the sun provides all the energy for the earth, and the earth's going to die when the sun dies, and the stars will die, and all the sources of energy in the universe will be degraded down into low-level heat, uniform temperature through all space, random motion of molecules everywhere, no more work can be done. The energy is still there, but it's dead. You can't use it anymore. The universe will die of what they call an ultimate heat death. But now it isn't dead yet, and that means it isn't infinitely old. If it were infinitely old, it would be dead because it's going to die in time, but it isn't dead, therefore it had a beginning. So it must have had a creation, but it couldn't create itself. The first law says nothing is being created in the present structure of the universe, so it couldn't create itself, but it must have been created. Otherwise, it would be dead. Now, this means, then, that we must account for the initial creation of the universe when it was wound up, as it were. It's been running down like a great watch. It must have been wound up 
but it couldn't wind itself up. Something, somebody must have wound it up outside of the universe. Well, the most logical conclusion that you could come to from these two laws is that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the most scientific statement anybody could possibly make about the beginning of this world in terms of what we know in science. There's no other cause adequate to account for it. Now, you see, as, as time goes on, the available power is going down. And this second law has been even called time's arrow by a great British physicist named Arthur Eddington. He said, as time goes on, the arrow points down. Well, as time goes on, the universe is running down, so the source of the tremendous power of the universe couldn't be in time. Time must have begun at the same time as the power began. And therefore, the source of the tremendous power in this universe could not be temporal power. It has to be eternal power. And that's what the scripture says. Even his eternal power clearly seen in the creation. Every process that, that the scientist studies or that the engineer utilizes, every process that exists continually testifies to that, that the source of the power for that process must be in the eternal power of God. There's no other explanation for it. So no wonder he says they're without excuse. If they don't see that, there's no excuse for it. Now also note, of course, just in passing, that there is a law of change in nature that says everything tends to go downhill. Every process goes down. That's why things get old and wear out, run down. And every system tends to go from order to disorder. That's another way of stating this second law. There is a universal process of change in the world which says that things go down from complexity to simplicity, finally to chaos. And that's just exactly opposite from what the evolutionist says, that things are going from chaos up to complexity. Why, nobody's ever seen anything like that. Nobody's ever seen a system go by a natural random process from one degree of order up to a higher degree of order. Nobody's ever seen that. And yet we're told that that's science. A science is supposed to be what we can see. Nobody's ever seen anything like that. What we see is things going downhill. That's what science is. That's the second law. Now, we don't have time to get into the complexities and the details of this. Uh, it's in some of our books if you're interested. But there is simply no way absolutely no way of, of, of compromising or, or harmonizing, rather, evolution with this second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is a law of science, and it says evolution on any significant scale is utterly impossible. And the various trivial devices that evolutionists have tried to, to suggest to accommodate that just simply will not work. And it's quite easy to show that. And we've had, in fact, debates on university campuses with some of the leading evolutionists, and we've made this point. And there's no answer for it. Now, until the evolutionists can demonstrate, not just speculate, but demonstrate that there's some mechanism in the nature which makes things go in spite of the second law, makes things go against the second law, why, they have no right to call it science. Well, but that's just a side. I want you to see, though, the rest of this verse. Not only his eternal power, but his Godhead clearly seen in the creation. What is the Godhead? Well, the Godhead is the deity, the divinity the nature, the structure of, the, of God. God has revealed himself in the Bible, of course, to be a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Where each is equally God, it's not that we have three different gods. We don't believe in three gods, understand? That would be a, a, a triad, but God is a trinity, where each is the whole. Each is equally, fully, eternally God. 
And yet we have all three. Now, we don't understand that completely. How there can be three yet one, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's the nature of the Godhead. And God the Father is is first in logical priority, although not first in time. It wasn't that it was only God the Father at one time, and then he created God the Son. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses and some people like that believe, but that isn't what the Bible teaches. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was equally eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But in logical order, we think of God the Father, and then God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. That logical order. Well, because that's the way God has revealed himself, theologians have traditionally associated this word Godhead with the Trinity. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. Now, the word itself doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means the Godhood of God, the nature of God, the structure of God. But that is what the nature of God is, as, far as the Bible has revealed it. Well, now how can that be seen in the creation? People say the doctrine of the Trinity is absurd, because you can't have three gods and have one God. That doesn't make sense. Mathematically, you don't add one plus one plus one and get one. You get three. And so this just doesn't make sense. And people reject the idea of the Trinity. And uh, they, not only the skeptics do it, but uh, so do many of the cultists for on, this, on this ground. Well, how can it be that the Godhead is clearly seen in the creation? It's interesting that the word Godhead occurs three times in the New Testament. Three times. One is in Acts 17, which we read earlier. Uh, we didn't read that particular verse, but in, in Acts 17, 20, I believe it is, right about there, God was speaking to these Athenian philosophers, and he said, you're too religious. And he was talking about all these different images that they had made of, of God with their hands, these wooden images and metal images and so on. But, of course, he realized that these images that he saw in the street corner were not what they really believed God was like because the philosophers of Athens were very intelligent people. These were men like Aristotle and Plato and others who were extremely intelligent, brilliant people. And they knew that God wasn't in a, in a pile of, of, uh, of stone here. They believed that God was the universe. God was a, was a, they, they believed in pantheism. And they were evolutionary philosophers, as I mentioned. They believed in evolution in, in one form or another. But for the popular people, in order to, to have people, people needed to have something that they could see, while they personified different aspects of this universal world spirit, the, the God that they thought of as nature, they personified that as the god of this and the goddess of that and so on, and they built images with their hands representing these. So it was pantheism on the philosophical level and pagan polytheism on the popular level, but they were really two aspects of the same thing. And now when Paul saw this, he says, Now, you men of Athens, you're too, too superstitious. God who made the world and everything, he doesn't need to make, live in these temples and so on. And he says, You ought not to think that the Godhead... And there's where the first time the word Godhead occurs. You ought not to think that the, that the Godhead is like unto gold and silver and stone graven by art and man's device. In other words, man can't make a model of the Godhead with his own hands, but neither can he make a, God, a model of the Godhead with his own brain. Whether it's a, a wooden image made with his hands or a philosophical construct of ultimate reality made with his brain, neither one can be valid, neither one... Man can simply not make a model of the Godhead. Man can't make God in his own image. And so that's the first time. And the second time the word Godhead is used is right here. What, what man can't do, God has done. And God has made a model of the Godhead 
in the creation. The heaven and the earth and all things, the, the cosmos, is a model of the Godhead. It isn't the Godhead, that is, nature is not God as the pantheists believe, but nature does express God as his creature. God made, the, made nature, made the world, and it's a model of the Godhead. So we see the Godhead clearly in the creation. Now, how's that? Well, this, uh, maybe you haven't thought of this before, and I don't want you to think that it's original with me because it isn't. Others have written this before me, and then besides that, the ancient Greeks knew this. Only they didn't think of it this way. We live in a world which is a, a world of three entities, space and time, and the things that happen in space and time. And everything in the physical cosmos is describable in terms of these three entities. That's the creation. And isn't it significant that there are three basic entities, not two or four or ten, there are three. Now, note also that these are not three different things. That is, it isn't that a part of the universe is space, and another part of it is time, and another part of it is, is matter, but rather all the universe is space, and all of it is time. And everywhere in space and time occur phenomena of matter and energy. Things are happening in space and time everywhere. No such thing as empty space or empty time. Everywhere we have the transmission of light, for example, light energy through space. So everywhere in space and time are phenomena. Now, each one is the whole, and yet each is distinct and separate. And therefore, it's, a, it's not a triad, but a, a triunity. Three, yet one, with each the whole. Not three different things, understand, but each one is the whole. And that's a model of the Godhead, because we have the three persons of the Godhead, not three gods, but each is God equally, fully, whole. Each is the whole, and yet each is distinct. It does seem paradoxical and a mystery, but it's exactly the same paradox and mystery that we have with the physical universe. Now, as I say, this, uh, this is so obvious that we don't see it, but we know that we live in a world of space, we live in it every day, we know that. And we know that time passes, and we pass through time, we know that. We don't even stop to think about it much until we begin to get old, and we do a little bit. And, and we also know that things happen in space and time, and all sorts of things happen, but they all happen in space and time. All of us know this, but we don't stop to think about, uh, the, about why that's true. Well, the reason why is because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, even his Godhead all around us. We're just a part of it in the creation. We don't see the forest for the trees, maybe, but it is there. Now, also note this, that it occurs in a logical order. Space, mass, time. In fact, the scientists speak of the universe as a space-mass-time continuum. It's what they call it, a space-mass-time continuum. You use the word continuum because it just continues and you can't tell where one stops and another begins. And note it's in that order. And now, note this, uh, note this statement. Let's define it this way. We can say that space is the invisible, omnipresent background of everything that happens. And space is manifest everywhere in phenomena of matter and energy. And then we experience and interpret these phenomena through time. And now all you have to do is substitute in that statement the words Father, Son, and Spirit for the words space and matter and time, and exactly the same sentence applies. It's a perfect model of the Godhead. Exactly the same relationship, and so on. It's, a, it's not the same as the Godhead, understand, but it is a model of the Godhead. And 
Note also that each one of these three, space, mass, and time, is itself a triunity, which models the Godhead. Space is three-dimensional. We don't live in a world of ten dimensions. We live in a world of three dimensions. Length, breadth, and height. We know that space is three-dimensional, but have you ever stopped to think about the fact that each dimension is the whole of space? In other words, you can visualize space as composed everywhere of lines running all in this one direction. That will fill all space. Or the other direction. Or the other. So that each is the whole, and yet you have to have all three to have space. And note also that to get the space, you don't add the three dimensions together. To get the space, you multiply them together. And just so, the mathematics of the Trinity is not 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1, but 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1. Not mathematically absurd at all. And furthermore, note this, that we always reference space in the first dimension. And so we speak of, of the foot or the square foot or the cubic foot as a unit of length or area or volume, or the mile or the meter or whatever we're using as a unit of length. Space is always referenced in the first dimension, but you can't see one dimension. You try to draw a line on the blackboard which represents one dimension, and as soon as you can see it, it has two dimensions, has width as well as length. So we can only see space in the second dimension. But, but uh, we don't live in two dimensions. We live in a world of three dimensions. And we even try to represent three dimensions in engineering, which was my field, of course, before I got into this uh, special work. We always found it was a great deal easier to teach students uh, engineering in terms of two-dimensional projections. It was hard, it's hard to visualize things in three dimensions. You live in three dimensions, but it's hard to visualize in that way. So we have a front view and a side view and a top view and so on. We have these two-dimensional projections. We have two-dimensional books and paintings and blueprints and so on. We always represent space in the second dimension, but we live in a world of three dimensions. So space is referenced in the first dimension, seen in the second dimension, experienced in the third dimension. And again, substitute the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In that sentence, in the same sentence applies. And time is future, present, and past. Time is flowing, and we... We th can think of it as flowing uh, towards us from the future. The future is the unseen source of time, flowing and becoming visible, manifest moment by moment in the present, and then flowing on into the realm of experienced, understood, interpreted time in the past. The source of time in the future becoming manifest in the present, experienced in the past. And again, substitute the words Father, Son, and Spirit, and the same sentence applies. And then everywhere in space and time occur these phenomena, these processes, these processes that involve power and energy and work and so on. Everything is, is energy, or rather it's, uh, it's not energy. We can't see the energy. We, we talk about energy, but nobody's ever seen energy or touched it or heard it. What we see, what we measure, what we observe is the work which the energy does. Energy is the capacity to do work, and so we measure the work it does. We measure the movement. We measure the velocity, and we that's basically what happens. You see, everything is moving. Work is being done. Forces are moving through distances. Everything that happens in space and time involves movement, and so we can measure the movement. We can take our speedometers or our instruments and measure the velocity of this movement, and we can tell whether it's going around or straight or, or what and how fast. And depending upon the particular movement which we measure, that determines the nature of the process that we're describing. Now, movement takes place through space during time, and we define the movement, we call it velocity, space over time, miles per hour. That's the movement, that's the velocity, the speed. 
And everything is described that way in terms of the movement. We measure that. But that movement didn't just happen of itself. In order to have the work done, the movement take place, there had to be energy there. And the energy is unseen and, and intangible. But it must be there. There must be energy to cause the motion. And then we experience that movement, that phenomenon, in, uh, in some way which we call a phenomenon. Let me illustrate. Uh, light energy, which is maybe the basic source of energy, the basic type of energy, light energy, uh, generates light waves. Tremendous movement, 186,000 miles per second, which we then experience in the seeing of light. And sound energy generates sound waves, which we experience in the phenomenon of hearing sound. And so on, and you can show that this applies in every field of energy. Always you have unseen, omnipresent energy continually generating, begetting movement, which we experience in phenomena. And again, substitute Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the same sentence applies. And you begin to see that this whole physical creation is a great trinity of trinities. It's a triunity of triunities. It's all around us. We somehow don't see it, but it's there. And especially the scientist who deals with these processes every day, he's continually measuring his process in terms of units of space and mass and time. In engineering, we use the foot-pound-second system. Might use some other, but always the process has to be described in these units of space and mass and time because it's that kind of a universe. And so there's a continual testimony as, as he studies his process that the energy for the process speaks of the power of God and the dimensional structure of the process speaks of the nature of God. And that's true without exception. And so when he doesn't see it, it says he's without excuse. We ought to see God in this creation. And when we don't, why? There's just no reason why we don't. But we don't. Now, it's there, but we don't see it. And God in grace has given yet another model of the Godhead. And there's a third place where the word occurs. And this is in second chapter of Colossians. And again, Paul is speaking to philosophers and about philosophers. And he says this in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Colossians. He says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. And that's the only place where the word philosophy occurs in the Bible, by the way. He says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and not after God. Because he says, and not after Christ, rather, because he says, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And so God has made two models of the Godhead, one in this great physical creation in which we live and which we study. But then also he's made another model of the Godhead himself, of the Godhead in the person of Jesus Christ. And everything that God the Father is, God the Holy Spirit, everything that God is, is manifest bodily in Jesus Christ. And we can see him. And there's no excuse for anyone to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here we have the very fullness of God, uh, where we can see and hear and touch and know. And he says, all that uh, life means, all that existence means, all that reality means is centered in Jesus Christ. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And there's no excuse for anyone to reject Jesus Christ. He may be able to argue himself out of, of seeing God in nature, but not when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no excuse. He that believeth on the Son is not condemned, 
But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he believeth he believeth not the the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, I trust that you know this God today, the God who is our Creator, and that's Jesus Christ. Also, the God who is our Savior, and that's Jesus Christ, and the God who is our wisdom and knowledge and life and all things, and that's Jesus Christ. He's everything, and He can be everything to us. We can be complete in Him, the head of all principality and power. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.